Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Compound and Friends. It is Tuesday, August 29th. Somehow, this is maybe the fastest summer ever. Do you feel that way? Maybe I feel that way every summer, uh, but this one really seemed to have gone quickly. And it was a good summer, and it was a good summer for the markets, good summer for bonds, good summer for stocks, great summer family-wise. Got to do a lot of cool stuff, and I hope you did as well. Uh, Got my kids back. And they are in orientation already for for school. So here we are. I wanted to do a little bit of housekeeping first tonight. Uh, First of all, there will be no new episode of The Compound and Friends this Friday. We are taking a show vacation. So Nicole will be off, John, Duncan, myself, Michael. I just want to give everyone a chance to catch their breaths. Uh, their breath, their collective breath. We have done some incredible shows over the last few weeks, few months. It's just been a wild run of just great guests and unbelievable content and got to take a break every once in a while. Uh, But you'll have tonight's episode. We're going to play What Are Your Thoughts with Michael Batnick. We're going to get into the Grayscale News. They won their lawsuit against the SEC and it looks like uh, Spot Bitcoin ETF has just gotten that much closer. We're going to talk about how quickly Goldman was able to find a buyer for their personal financial services business, and we're pretty close to that story. We will talk about NVIDIA. Yes, again, (laughs) we'll talk about earnings. We'll talk about stocks, all the usual topics. Uh, But if you miss us over the weekend and you wish there were more, uh, this is what I would do. Go back and look at the last, I don't know, six, seven episodes that we've done, The Compound and Friends. It's just, it's it, it's it's crazy. Uh, we had Darren Ravel. We had Michael Sembolist from JP Morgan. This is just back in July. We had Jack Raines, Sam Rowe, JC Peretz, Mark Fisher, Joe Terranova, Bob Elliott was on the show. Last week was Eric Balchunas, Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, Guy Spear, excuse me, that was last week. So we've just, we've had an insane run of guests. And if you missed any of those shows, go back uh, and and make sure to catch up. And we will return the following Thursday. A couple of other quick announcements. If you are a financial advisor joining us at Future Proof, it uh, starts September 10th, runs through the 13th. And I know a lot of advisors are coming there, a lot of firm owners, a lot of employee advisors, whatever your status is, if you want to meet the team, if you've always been curious what it might be like to work with Ritholtz Wealth Management or what we're doing with our certified financial planners and their careers, talk to us. We are able to be reached hiring at RitholtzWealth.com. That's hiring at RitholtzWealth.com. The president of my firm, uh, Jay Tinney, is personally fielding all of those inbound inquiries. And if it makes sense for us to say hello or have a conversation or whatever, I'm going to have about 40 people from my firm on hand at Future Proof, plenty of people for you to meet, everyone from your fellow advisors to traders to client service associates, uh, research people. We're all going to be out there, so it'll, it'll be a great opportunity. I also want to bring up that on the Compound Media side, we are still interviewing for the audio-video role. So we're looking for somebody who edits audio, edits video, wants to work with the media team. It's a very strong team, 
and growing, and we're doing more content than ever, and we want to give somebody a shot. And if we can find someone from within our audience, which is what we've been able to do uh, up until now, that would just be incredible. So if you want to work with Duncan and John and Nicole and the whole team at The Compound, the best way to get that interview would be hiring at ritholtzwealth.com. And we would be happy to talk to you there. Okay. I want to wish everyone a happy Labor Day. Stay tuned for an all new segment of What Are Your Thoughts with myself, with Michael Batnick. And we will talk to you after the long holiday weekend. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. All right, gangsters, who's ready for an all-new edition of What Are Your Thoughts? Starring me, downtown Josh Brown, and Michael Batnick. I hope you're ready. Here we come. Duncan is here. John, Nicole, Sean, Rob, uh, and a whole bunch of people in the live chat. A couple of shout-outs real quick. Michael Skyros is here. Dave Wilson. Rachel's back. Uh, who else? MD is here. Chris Hayes. Let's see. We got a, we got a whole crew here. Rooster. What's up, man? Ryan Blood, good to see you. Nick Kaspersky. All right, we got a we got a full house in the chat. We have tons of stuff to talk about. We had some breaking news today. We redid a little bit of the show. But before we get into the biggest topics in the markets and investing so far this week, a word from our uh, our sponsor, Michael. Take it away. Today's show is brought to you by. Uh, whoop, where, where am I? Here I am. Tropical Bros. There you go. So. Bang. Tropical Bros is, is known for their summer gear. Yeah. Oh my god, look at those shirts. I've got one. I only have one of those. Oh no, I have the I have the pot up on the left, and I've got that those sweet was that a daiquiri on the right? I've got that. I was I gonna say I've up. I've seen you in a bunch of these. Yeah, I've got so many. It's I, I love it. Everywhere I go, chart off, please. Do you know when I went to Baja Mar, I was uh, rocking one of those things, crushing and, it. And. And uh, one of the like security guards or something said, welcome back. I said, did we talk? Oh, the shirt. She goes, yeah, yeah I remember you from the shirt. <laughs> I remember statement. you. I remember you from the shirt. So uh, Tropical right. Bros and us, Animal Spirits, did a collab. Yep. And they sold out like two or three times, but they restocked. So if you were in the market for that, oh, God, look at that thing. It's gorgeous. This is the Super Stretch Animal Spirits Hawaiian shirt. And the, this is the third time they've had to make more. Look at that. It's got the, way, it's got the noob whale. Oh, if man, you, if, it's beautiful. If you, got, if you got locked out, they're back. Restock. Check it out. Use code COMPOUND20 at checkout to get 20% off. That's COMPOUND20. Right. Check them All out. All right. The shirts are fire. I got I to gotta give it to and you guys. if you miss the summer, they've got, they've got you back for the fall, too. So, love it. All right. Very cool. So, a uh, couple, couple of big news items that took place uh, today and yesterday. Let's do Grayscale first. Um, I think it's a big deal and I don't really care that much about crypto or Bitcoin, but this does not happen very often. So let me just read the actual announcement that Grayscale put out. 
GBTC lawsuit decision. And this decision is like years in the making, by the way. D.C. Circuit rules in favor of Grayscale. Today, the D.C. Circuit ruled in favor of Grayscale in our lawsuit challenging the SEC's decision to deny the conversion of GBTC to an ETF. Uh, here's all their fluff. This is a monumental step forward, blah, blah, blah. Basically, um, this takes us a gigantic step closer to an actual spot Bitcoin ETF. For those who have not been following this closely, very quickly, GBTC is a publicly traded trust. And like a closed-end fund, it does not trade at its net asset value, meaning for a lot of its life, it traded above or at a premium to the amount of Bitcoin that it owned. For most of the last three years, it's traded at a substantial discount. That discount would go away if and when they got the ability to convert to an ETF because then all of a sudden you would have market makers able to do arbitrage. Uh, as of tonight, that discount still stands at 24%, which sounds huge until I tell you it was like 45% discount just a couple of months ago. So um, Wait, Josh, yeah, one thing about that, the, the, the discount uh, closed substantially today. I think Bitcoin was up like 5% and GBTC was up like 20. So that 25% you just mentioned is a day old. So we'll have new numbers, I think, in the next day or two. So maybe it's closer to 15 now? It, you're it's saying? probably closer to, closer to 15, yeah. Closer. Okay. So my, my big takeaways, and then I want to hear from you, Mike, um, this really does not happen very often. And the SEC has had absolutely no problem uh, beating up on crypto boys for most of the last couple of years. This was a big one, though, because to some extent, it does legitimize digital assets as an asset class that can be owned by regular people in regular brokerage accounts. You but Josh, will not when, have when you to say when you say this does not happen often, you're referring to the SEC losing a case. Yeah, and they lost three zero. And if you read the language in the decision, it was like almost like with extreme prejudice. Well, can I? They, let me just, let they me referred to the regulators as being capricious and arbitrary in their denial of the application to convert to an ETF. I think I, I think I pulled that one out. They said. This is from the document. It is a fundamental principle of administrative law that agencies must treat like cases alike. The Securities and Exchange Commission, Commission recently approved the trading of two Bitcoin futures funds on national exchanges, but denied approval of Grayscale's Bitcoin fund. Petitioning for a review of the commission's denial order, Grayscale maintains its proposed Bitcoin exchange-traded product is material, materially similar to the Bitcoin futures exchange-traded products and should have been approved to trade on, on NYSE ARCA. We agree. The denial of Grayscale's proposal was arbitrary and capricious because the commission failed to explain its different treatment of similar products. We therefore grant Grayscale's petition and vacate the order. Credit to uh, Bloomberg and the, the legal people. I think the guy's name is Stein, who's been covering this. Uh, Eric Balchunas told us on the Compound and Friends last week that this was very likely, this decision was likely to come soon. And Bloomberg was handicapping this in favor of Grayscale. At 70%, uh, I think. Yeah, so so they got that right. And, you know, BlackRock seems to have seen the writing on the wall when they did their filing out of the blue three weeks ago. It was like, wait, all of a sudden BlackRock wants to file. They must know something. They probably figured out that with the Bitcoin futures ETFs getting approved, there were no legal grounds to say that this one couldn't. And I think that that was like, that was, we were trying to figure out like, why would they all of a sudden do this? That was why. Um they, they wanted to get in the queue, not until it looked likely that an approval was near 
they didn't want to spend three years fighting for this like Grayscale was was willing to. Um, so I think that was a, a, a big aspect of this. You know, if you're saying that it's an opaque market subject to manipulation and you're not comfortable with uh, how that market operates, arguably those same flaws would show up in the futures pricing for Bitcoin. So like, you know, it, it, it almost just, it just got to the point where it didn't make sense anymore. And uh, let's put up some reaction charts, John. So, Mike, what are we looking at here? So, so the top is GBTC. The bottom is Coinbase, both up 15 some odd percent today. Uh, yep. Bitcoin itself was up 6, 6% or so. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised at the Coinbase reaction. Maybe this is just like, this is not fundamentals. It's just like positioning and, and just buy everything Bitcoin related, which I get in the short term. In the long term, I would think that this is not bullish for Coinbase. I'm sorry. I think it's bullish short term for Coinbase because it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of the bearishness over legal outcomes off of the True. stock as okay, an overhang. So yeah, but so long term, maybe, maybe I agree that, you're with right. you. Maybe that's worth 15%, the SEC overhang. That's a fair point. Yeah. So, so like it's, it's not automatic anymore that everybody in a lawsuit with the regulators is going to lose. That's what you're seeing in, in Coinbase today. But I agree with your bigger point, which is this is not going to add up to more retail usage of uh, or more retail trading volume in Bitcoin uh, on Coinbase's platform. It's just not. 40% of, of Coinbase's revenue as of the most recent quarter was through, Coin, was through Bitcoin. But revenue, but but retail trading, retail trading of crypto is is like cut in half. Yeah, this, the, so we we have we have the data. The trading volume in August uh, of twenty twenty two in the midst of a bear market was fifty seven billion. This August it's twenty two billion. Yeah. I have a research report that came out today from Dan Dolev. He covers fintech for Mizuho. And Dan is saying the Coinbase rally is largely a knee-jerk reaction and short covering. However, the SEC losing a crypto case adds momentum to the prospects that Coin may prevail in its ongoing legal battle regarding altcoins and staking. Um, he he thinks that that's a, a bridge too far, and it would be it would be a mistake to assume that because this one went for grayscale, all of a sudden the regulators are on the run. And all these plaintiffs and defendants are going to start triumphing uh, over over them. I, I do not think that you can read that much into today's decision. Um, but if there is a retail product, there will be ten of them. I think the fees will be driven substantially lower. Maybe maybe a Bitcoin ETF becomes a twenty five basis point product inside of the first couple of years, regardless of how much gets raised. A lot of the people involved with those ETFs will be people that would have, under other circumstances, been trading at Coinbase. You know so what? I you know what? You know what? On Coinbase balance, is, it's not great for them. What Coinbase is still going to have, and if if Bitcoin does go on another bull run, whether it's that begins today or three years, or I guess never is an option too. Uh, ETFs obviously, you know, don't trade twenty four seven, right? So a lot of the hedge funds, a lot of the institutional investors are still going absolutely to, are still going to trade the coins on Coinbase. Absolutely. Until the exchanges permit 24-7 trading in ETFs, which I think is coming in our lifetime. I mean, um, Rob, Rob, Robinhood does it already. Yeah. So not, for until all, that, not for all of their products, but un, for a lot of them. Until that goes wider, you're right. That will be the part of the market that they will have. And maybe that's maybe that's worth the 16% rally today. Um, but I think by and large, they're, they're not going to have the mom and pops who are not crypto fanatics. 
uh, using their platform. Any uh, now, are there ancillary businesses that will be complementary? Definitely, yeah, yeah. Staking, maybe Blending. market making, yeah. yeah. So it's it's I guess it's got it's a positive for anyone who's large and under regulatory scrutiny in the crypto market. I think that's fair to say. It's a it's a positive. It's it it may not long term be a positive, but today these guys feel like oh my god, we we got one, like we finally won one. Uh, and and I know a lot of the ecosystem despises DCG, and they don't love Barry, and maybe they don't love uh, Sun and Shine, but like. They have to be like texting these guys like congratulations. Well, interestingly, so what is it? There's 16 billion dollars in the product. Yeah. Uh, at two percent. Yeah. That's that's a lot of money. It's a 300 something million dollars in fees. 320 million dollars in fees. So it's funny they won, um, but their fees are going to go from 300 million down to yeah. A lot lower than that. Now they're going to – congratulations, you won. Now you compete with BlackRock and maybe if you're lucky, someday Vanguard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the prize. Hey, congrats. You're an ETF now. Best of luck. Although I, I do wonder when the – when if the ETFs come out, like how much money – how much of a first mover advantage do they have? I don't know. That does, the first mover advantage is, is a myth. The, the, the first mover advantages existed from the days where ETFs were born. Wait, hang on, hang on. The money that's in GBTC that that has a gain is obviously not coming out. That's not coming Fine. out. You're not Fine. paying taxes to go. But on a go-forward basis, I would venture that most people are going to choose BlackRock or something cheaper than GBTC. Don't, doesn't GBTC, as per the language of the trust, have to give you your Bitcoin in kind if you request it? I don't after, know. A cer- after a certain holding, maybe that goes away when they become. I mean, I, that, was, that was that was a huge part of the of the trade. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, um, what would you say to people who are right now spending like all this time and money for the last few years trying to build like digital brokerage solutions for for crypto assets? Would you basically tell them you missed it? Like, like, like pencils down. I would. For the most part, there's there's still a large crypto native contingent that is going to want to hold the coins. You, it, but large, large in real life, or large like on Twitter? No, I don't. I don't. Know. I don't I think don't it's large. I, I I think that that's probably not a great use of people's time going forward. If this stuff is going to be really easy to buy and sell in a brokerage account, we don't need digital asset based accounts. Um, there already are a few. We don't need new ones. We don't need more. Yeah, I mostly need that. We, we don't need things with new connections to to whatever. Like people are just going to buy. If they could buy it at Schwab Fidelity, that's what they're going to do. That's my that's my, Morgan Stanley. That's my opinion. All right, uh, let's talk about Goldman. So mm-hmm. it only took like a week for them to find a buyer for um, personal financial services, which was the RIA business that was meant to cater to the mass affluent, and that was I don't know a hundred. Uh, uh, what what do we say? What do we say it was? It was like um, it, it was like two hundred and thirty financial advisors originally. It's probably much smaller now. 23,000 clients, probably not that many anymore, but still a substantial business in RIA terms. Maybe not in investment bank terms. Uh, but anyway, our friend Peter Malouk won the deal. Uh, I know you congratulated him earlier. I think it's pretty cool that he's the one buying it. He actually knows how to do the RIA business. Very different operator than the people at Goldman who were, I think, guessing at it. Uh, and, and, uh, I would argue, like, if you think of the Mount Rushmore of RIA builders, he's on there. Like, yeah. it's him, 
Joe Duran, who Carson. originally sold uh, um, Edelman United Capital, Edelman, and who's for Ken Fisher? I guess he is the biggest. I get, uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just saying like size, not you know right. So anyway, uh, Peter Malouk's 245 billion dollar uh, firm. He really here's what's interesting about Malouk. Here's how good he is. He is not one of these firms that's been rolling up RIAs for the last 20 years. He made his first acquisition, I read, in 2018. Did you even realize that? Yeah, and I don't think I don't think he has any private equity money. He does, General Atlantic. But I think that private equity money was but that, was, that, was, it, it, was it in the last like two years or so? Yes. He had a hundred percent of the business. He didn't have employee <clears throat> shareholders and he didn't have private equity. At a certain point, you have to take some of your own risk off the table. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the role that private equity fulfilled there. And then also probably like here's a whole bunch of growth capital. And since then, he's been buying accounting firms. He bought, and, one, he, he bought one last week too, another one. I think yeah, the first buy, one was buying RIAs. Another one. So anyway, listen, I, I think this is, this is a good situation for the advisors and their clients. There's oh, my lo- God. This is a, so much better than – this is so much better – than like Don't LPL name or <laughs> Raymond James. No, just because it's an RIA, not because I have any, I have no problem with anyone. I'm saying it would have sucked more if they were sold from one brokerage firm to another. Where there, could, where, where, where there could be potential conflicts. Yeah, of course I agree with that. Right. That's all I'm saying. I'm not yeah. like disparaging anyone. This outcome is better because it's R, it's an RIA again. Like like the original firm. All right. Anyway, we spent a lot of time on that. Uh, just wanted to tie a bow around it. You're up. Okay. Um, so congratulations, Peter, and all the advisors going and clients going with them. All right. Uh, Willie Delwich had a good tweet. We're going to talk about earnings revisions. Willie said, if building a case that August equity market weakness is likely to be limited in degree and duration, then you probably like what you see from the earnings revision trend, which is still up and to the right. So on top, you've got the S&P. On the bottom, you've got the S&P 1500 earnings revision trend. I don't know what that yellow line is. It looks like some sort of moving average around it. Um, but this is a good thing. Uh, next chart is, is saying the same story. What do we got? Okay, this is the S&P 500 correcting in price as forward 12-month earnings estimates go up. This is about as this is about as healthy and as bullish as, as something that you would want to see. Uh, is there a danger, though, that – Price continues lower, and then those earnings revisions turn around and follow it lower. Because I feel like that is a way eh. that this could resolve. It's not impossible. Eh. I mean, eh. you're so you're so complacent, <laughs> super complacent. No, I like it. Actually, you want to me of complacent. You see where the VIX closed today? VIX closed at fourteen and a half. I saw an amazing tweet before we hopped on from Frank Capillary. Within the S and P five hundred today, technology, materials, and real estate. 124 stocks up. So again, technology, materials, real estate. 124 stocks up, zero stocks down. Why was the we had, so today was the third the the strongest three day rally since March? Did I miss yeah. something? Why were stocks up so much today? Was it just rates coming down hard? I think the real question is why were they down so much? I think we had to get through earnings season with all these sell the news reactions, and now that that's over, it's like why were we selling? If earnings estimates are going up, why were we why were we selling the market down? Well, because I mean, it was it was just to sell the news. It wasn't very complicated. The, the uh, Nasdaq, how, the how Nasdaq much? was up. Hold on, the Nasdaq was up thirty eight percent year to date going into going into earnings season. So it gave it gave back what a nickel, big deal. I know we're going to talk about Nvidia momentarily. How much of the revision upward in earnings is coming from uh, that that stock? Like, is yeah. it 
I'm sure it's you know a, what I mean. A, a, yeah, uh, you know when people were like dunking on Nvidia. Oh, that's all you got. It it blew out and it was flat on the day. Yeah, I, yeah. listen, I get it. See at five hundred, Papi Chulo. I got it. So I don't, I don't know. So but okay. Anyway, uh, but, right. but, but it closed at all time high today. So speaking of Nvidia, uh, here's why value stocks are poised to outperform. <laughs> uh, poised to outperform. I so I have not bought into a lot of the you know value rotation hype over the years. It always fails. It always resolves lower. I'm probably going to say the same thing again after going through this, but it's worth considering. There was a lot of excitement in Quantland when Vanguard put this out. Vanguard does not do this value versus growth thing often. They're an index. Uh, they're predominantly uh, a low-cost index solution, and they like the 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 DNA is Jack Bogle telling you to own the market, not own slices of the market. So this is not their religion. But they point out that the degree to which growth has outperformed value, coupled with the degree to which the fair value of growth stocks has advanced versus the fair value of value stocks. I'm sorry, you have to put an air quotes around fair value anytime you say Yeah, fair value, value is I, most, I, I don't by make the way, rules. I don't let make me, rules. Right, so let me give you the footnote right in the middle of the text. Fair value is fake. Um, it's it's a everyone's got their own definition, but it's a way to like try to calculate. Let's say nobody was buying and selling the stock, what would it like? What should it be worth? But it's very subjective um, how you run that calculation. But anyway, let's go through this stuff because I thought it was interesting. So the first chart I'm showing you here, this is Russell 1000 growth ETF, obviously in purple, versus Russell 1000 value ETF since the start of 2023. Growth up 31%, value up less than 6%. It has been a route, an absolute route. Next chart, please. Wait, how are growth stocks up 31% when I could get 5% of my cash? Yeah, what's wrong? Right. Um, I asked Sean to take this back to the bottom in October. So same story, growth up 36%. Value looks a little bit better, up 17%. So value had this really big recovery off the October lows, as it always does. At, at the start of, you know, when people start sniffing out the next expansion, value tends to outperform. At least that's what the literature says. So we did that part. And then, like it never happened, the banks went down for the count in March. Um, big part of the value indices. Oil stocks sold off too. And then before you knew it, Apple, A Amazon, Alphabet were, uh, you know, breaking out again. So that's that's what happened there. Um, but let's get into let's get into what Vanguard says. Uh, this is Kevin DeCursio, who is the head of Vanguard Capital Markets Model Research Team. The value growth relationship is at an extreme, very similar to 2020. Now, as then, investors in aggregate are very enthusiastic about growth, notably tech, seem to have limited interest in value, including financial, industrial, and healthcare companies. Not that those sectors always have to be value stocks; they just tend to be. Kevin says, when the historical actual ratio exceeds the upper limit of our estimated fair value range, the chance for market beating returns uh, appears to be larger in growth stocks. When that ratio is below the limit, lower limit of the range, such opportunity appears to be larger in value stocks. Let's put that chart up. Do you understand, Mike, do you understand what this is showing here? Just like the... Uh, the, the low, the high, and the prediction ratio, like and how much we've deviated. So right now, the deviation from fair value is 51% uh, for, for value stocks uh, versus growth stocks. 
So it's it's as low as we can see going back. This is, I guess, almost 45 years worth of data. This is as as oversold relative to fair value as value stocks are relative to growth stocks, which is a fancy way of saying that these stocks are even cheaper than they are normally cheaper um, than the overall market. Is that is that the best way to explain that? Yeah. Okay. Looks like even so in 2020, uh, based on various metrics, glamour stocks, meaning like the top decile of expensive stocks, were even more expensive relative to the bottom decile than they were in the top in 2000. So that corrected, right? We had a pretty nice snapback rally in value. Well, here's and, the number. And it's, and it's since rolled over. You, right. So you had this record undervaluation in 2020. Everybody wanted to own the stay-at-home stocks, which were tech growth stocks. They sold everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2020, that that preceded a return advantage of 46 percentage points in 20 months. So value stocks had quite a rip from there relative to the growth side. The same thing happened in 2000, uh, where I don't know if we still have that chart up, um, but we had an instance of value outperforming growth by 59 percentage points a year after this moment in the year 2000. And then the other one was 1993. Value stocks had underperformed growth by eight percentage points. Um, and then on the way back up, it was a three-year rally for, for value. So, but here's what I want to point out. It looks like lower lows. Like value stocks have these raging rallies versus growth. <laughs> well, how, but then they lower roll, highs. Lower highs. Lower sure. highs. They never quite get back. So this is now 40 years of value, I think, declining relative to growth in overall terms, despite these big rallies, which is why you were, uh, Chartoff, you were joking with, um, with Guy Spear on the podcast last week, like, what is a value stock these days? And you're like somebody who underperforms, like convince me this is going to change anytime soon. It's like, it's decades of this, of, of this, uh, underperformance. Well, it's not, it's not decades because value stocks did outperform in the aughts. Not uh, uh, the odds the zeros. Twenty years ago, yeah, it's twenty years ago. Shit, decades. we're old. We're old. I'm just saying. Uh, anyway, I thought I, I thought I would throw that up. All right, here's one last thing. Let's get this table up. So Vanguard is saying like there is one type of situation where value historically shines. Uh, if you break the state of the economy into four buckets: expansion, slowdown, contraction, recovery. It's recovery that value tends to put on its best, has its best return advantage, I guess is the way to say it, versus growth. But in all three of those other phases, it's really uh, either a push or not as good as growth. And to me, that like, that's like, should, should have been the real message. Like, well, yeah, you might make, you might make money with a value bent for a little while, but overall, Growth stocks are just trouncing value stocks in most economic environments. John, John, throw up the chart that I have on the bottom, please. So the one before that. Thank you. So the, the, the top pane is showing the Russell 2000 value divided by the Russell 2000 growth. Yeah. This had a massive rebound off the 2020 lows and gave back, gave back some, but not nearly all of it. The Russell 1000 value divided by the Russell 1000 growth gave back almost all of that. Chart off, please. This is not complicated. I don't care about the economic environments and this and interest rates and that and inflation. It's very simple. It's Apple and it's Magnificent Seven. It's not complicated. It's really hard 
for value stocks to outperform the best companies exceeding the most wild expectations that we've ever seen. That will not continue indefinitely. It just won't. So I can't yeah. tell you when, how, or why that's going to change, but the next chart should give you a clue that it's not, you know, can't last forever. This is- Look at this. This is the Magnificent Seven percentage of total US single stock net exposure. This is the names that everybody knows and loves. What's the, what is it? It's 20% it's, of total- it, US, US single stock. Single, so if you own a if you own I don't know if I'm saying this right, but if you own a stock, there's a one in five chance that you own one of these seven names, which sound, actually kind of sounds low to be honest. Like who yeah. who so all right, let's 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 blend this into the next topic. We're gonna talk about NVIDIA. Uh this chart blew my face right off my face. Chart on please. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, holy moly. Yeah, look at this. What is going on? All right. So this is NVIDIA's data center revenue per quarter, and in 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 up until 2021, it was about a billion dollars, half a billion to a billion dollars. And this is data center revenue alone. Is, uh, is, 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 per data center, is that the GPUs? Is that like the whole kit and caboodle? No, GPUs could also be used in video games. That's another segment. The data center is cloud, or so uh, Jensen Wang calls cloud computing accelerated computing, but it's basically uh, data center is Amazon Cloud, Microsoft Cloud, Google Cloud. So but it's their chips. sales of NVIDIA GPUs. Yes, but the chips go elsewhere, not just data centers. Sales of GPUs to the data center went from a billion to 10 billion per quarter overnight. Unbelievable. So, so Unbelievable. I've recreated, I agree I've recreated this chart from Visual Capitalist. Next chart, please. We're looking at NVIDIA, AMD, and Intel. AMD and Intel are competitors. Intel, not so much, I guess. But just look at the blue. And then the next chart, the the quarter over quarter growth, it's it's truly Nuts. absurd. 100, 140% quarter over quarter growth for data center revenue at NVIDIA. It's like a brand new business that just exploded out of nowhere to become most of their business. So what's so interesting is that NVIDIA went through like a bl – NVIDIA blew up in 2022. Yeah. It was down like 60-something percent. Remember what happened to their gaming revenue? Next chart, please. Their gaming revenue got demushed. Uh, so the gaming revenue is in green and look at that data center coming up at the rear. Holy moly. It's eating everything. So I want to tell you that the, this is from, in, this is from, this is from Ben Thompson, by the way, baked into that date gaming revenue is blockchain bullshit, which well, that, was a, a really big customer for NVIDIA huge, GPUs, huge. um, because linear processing sped up the mining process faster than CPUs, which is inline computing. All we're talking about, we talk about GPUs and accelerated uh, or, or nonlinear computing. With a traditional CPU, the chip is carrying out one operation, then the next operation, then the next. Um, NVIDIA, through creating the images for video games, had to be nonlinear. A lot of things had to be happening at once to produce the images that you see on your screen when you play Grand Theft Auto. And, and that is the difference between Intel and NVIDIA. GPU versus CPU. Listen, and when you're when you're explaining something that's a little bit complicated, here's what Eddie Elfenbein taught me. Here's what you say. It's it's very technical. You probably wouldn't understand. It's not so just if I <laughs> yeah, but so if I understand it, it's definitely not technical. I think you know I have never been in a clean room uh, before. I have not been to Taiwan. If I if I'm telling you how this stuff works, it's it's really not that complex. Um, what's his tweet? Next chart. All right, this is from Wasteland Capital, Nvidia. Never, su never such insane upward revision forecast revision in my entire life. The, at the end of January, analysts predicted NVIDIA revenue for, for fiscal year 2026, their fiscal years are weird, by the way, of $38 billion. Today, eight months later, they forecast $90 billion. Yeah, it's insane. Current, 
current year has gone from 29 billion to 49 billion. So, I mean, you just you don't you don't see this. In fact, you've never seen this. So here's from Adam Parker at Trivarium. Unpre- unprecedented has never happened. Ha- this would never happen at almost any other publicly traded company. How? Has, How would it? Has never happened. Listen, Adam Parker says over the last six months, the consensus expectations for calendar 2024 revenue has risen from roughly 35 to 75 billion dollars. The result of their May earnings, which yielded quote, the largest upward sales revision of any mega cap company ever, ever. NVIDIA is forecasted to generate over $35 billion in 2024 free cash flow, meaning the company now has an over 3% free cash flow yield. This is in line with or better. So people talk about, oh, NVIDIA is so expensive based on a price to sales ratio. But if you look at forward earnings, it's like 40 times, not egregious. So 3% free cash flow yield, that's in line with or better than 80 other mega cap mega cap stocks, including uh, Texas Instruments, Microsoft, Walmart, uh, Lulu, Costco, Oracle, and Chipotle, to name a few. Would it be fair to say that I'm a stock picking genius? Like, would that be a fair characterization of of what you've witnessed me do with this stock over the last eight years? No, honestly. you bought you bought the gold miners a couple months ago, but this is uh, your best no, call ever. They don't all they don't all work. But it, is this maybe the greatest stock in the history of stocks? And we'll never see anything like this ever again. As long no, as it's we not. Live? No, it's not. It's not the greatest thing you've ever seen in real time in your life. Not well, Berkshire Hathaway in the seventies. I'm saying since you've been following the stock market, you have never did, seen anything like this. I did a post today asking, "Is Nvidia the next Cisco?" And if you ask to ask, the answer is no. In the five and a half years, so from 1995 through March of 2000, March of 2000, which is a five and a quarter year period, Cisco was up four thousand percent. In yeah. the last five plus years, Nvidia is up like seven hundred. So it's been it's not, great. Right, it's not even at Cisco levels. That's crazy. So that's, that's wild. But it's it's one. It's I've never seen revisions. I like watched this. the Cisco. I watched the Cisco run too. Just not the whole thing. I kind of came in at the tail end of it. But wow. Look at this. Look at this next chart. So this is again from Adam Parker. So he's looking at 2024 expected revenue mm. versus 2022 revenue, and Nvidia mm. is expected to go up 140 percent. Off I mean, the this charts. Is, this is the, crazy shit. But what's interesting, Josh, the next closest is Tesla, 49% to your growth. What's interesting is that the people like mutual fund managers are not going gaga for NVIDIA like at all. So next chart, what? They're they're all trying to find the next one because they they can't buy this. Uh, I talk to these people on TV. They they think Broadcom is the next uh, NVIDIA. They, they, uh, they think AMD. That's what the, the game that's being played right now. So only uh, this is interesting. So only Apple and Tesla are underweight by active by active funds. But look at the relative weight of Nvidia. It's not like they're going nuts. Like they're they're more overweight. Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and and, and Facebook. Yeah, you know you don't hear a lot of people screaming Nvidia is a bubble. You really don't. And the reason why is because there's a shitload of earnings and revenue growth to go along with the stock price growth. And people don't think they cheated. People don't think that they like are issuing press releases about nonsense. They have been building this ecosystem since 2006. Their software platform, CUDA software platform, they've been built. They've been building this for 20 years. So you don't like you don't have like people screaming about short Nvidia. It's a it's you know they don't they didn't get the same scrutiny that Tesla got on the way up. Well, because they're delivering. What? What's what? And I'm not saying Tesla did it, but they're delivering just massive, massive. No, but t- a lot of aspects of Tesla look like a trick. 
They were using these tax subsidies um, to to sell more cars than they order, or, ordinarily would have. And then and then like earning, they were getting earnings from trading tax credit. There was a lot of aspects to the Nvidia story where they were getting money from the government for facilities that people just uh, and people hate him. Well, guess what? Nvidia you don't stock hear that not, with Nvidia. Nvidia stock is not going up fifteen percent because they're issuing more shares or doing a stock split. This is right. not like this is not like any any trickery going on. And what are they trading at twenty five times earnings? Like yeah. legitimately. I, uh, well, is, so let is, me get it, let me let me get this in. This is, is, it, is it is it is it twenty times? What is it? I'm going to tell you now. This is Barron's expert trollery from Barron's. This is the headline, which you know is designed to trigger. Nvidia stock hasn't been this cheap since January before it rallied two hundred fifty percent. If you liked Nvidia, then you should like it now. Uh, shares have surged this year. Blah blah blah. They say the forward price earnings ratio which measures a stock's current price relative to earnings in the future, is a, uh, shows NVIDIA shares are now cheaper than they have been since January 5th, even though the stock's up 250%. This is the math. Um, given the outlook and the company's earnings, the forward PE uh, as of July 31st is for earnings of $7.95 a share and $1,153 in fiscal 2025. What By Friday morning... That they oh, okay, those numbers that. were seven ninety five and eleven fifty. Then they reported earnings. Right after reporting those earnings, those numbers went to ten sixty and sixteen dollars fifty cents a share for twenty four and twenty five. So Nvidia's forward PE so has moved lower. So that's lower. 30, it that's was forty three. It's thirty three now. So that's thirty times. Right, Once so it is. It's earn. cheaper. The stock, the stock is cheaper than it was in January after going up two hundred fifty percent. That's craziness, but it's it's tr- true. One so, more thing. Wait, John, throw this chart up. The the percentage of large cap, long only active funds owning each ticker as of the end of July. So more people own Google, Apple, uh, Tesla, and no, I'm sorry, not Tesla. Google, Apple, Tesla, and Amazon than they own Nvidia. That makes sense to me. They've been larger for longer. Yep. Talk to me in three years. We'll see what that looks like, right? Um, this is from Gunjan Banerjee. We reference her a lot. She's one of our favorite reporters at Wall Street Journal. She says, it's lonely being an NVIDIA bear. And she says, uh, equity analysts have an increasingly sunny outlook on the stock. In fact, none of the stock analysts tracked by FactSet have a sell rating on NVIDIA. Quote, for the first time in the stock's history, there are zero sells. And for the first time in the stock's history, more than 93% of the analysts have buys, wrote Michael Purvis of Talbacken Capital Advisors in a note to clients today. So not only are there no sells, there's almost no holds. 93% of analyst calls are buys. There's also no shorts. 1% wow. of short of shares outstanding are sold short. There's no shorts. I mean, be, be my guest. No, Step but, right but, up and but, short but, it. But they weren't blown out. There was never any shorts. There was never more than 2% of the shares. This was not short. a short squeeze. That's not right. That is not, that is not the story. The story here is massive upward revisions to earnings and, and, and revenue multiple quarters in a row. That's the story. Uh, all right. Let's talk about Instacart. Are you excited for this IPO? I am because it's the biggest tech IPO we've had in a while and how the street responds will dictate what sort of IPO activity we have going forward. I think it's very important. 
I thought we owned it through that fund that we have at Equity Zen, but it looks like they sold it. So we do not have any position in Instacart uh, at I'm all. Flat, flat. So we're, flat. we're flat Instacart. All right. For people that are not aware, Instacart is a basically they have their own delivery people, and they have an app, and their delivery people go into grocery stores and pick the items off the shelves and then bring it to you, and they make no money on that at all. All of the money Instacart makes is by Pepsi and other consumer packaged goods companies buying advertising space on the app to try to push consumers to their soda before they pick a different soda from the menu. That's like most of the profits at Instagram, according to their S1. So it's – I wouldn't you, call you, it an advertising you just, business. You, you just called Instacart Instagram. But you meant Instacart. Instacart right? Yeah. I wouldn't call it an advertising business because it's – um, and, and, and this has been, this has been written up better than I explain, I can explain it, but it's a four-sided network. You have the, the supermarkets, which, uh, Kroger, for example, they love this because it's just more sales at their store. Um, then you've got the, uh, users, people who are too lazy to go to the grocery store, which I'm sorry, I have to say it's very sad. Um, but fine. And then you've got you the advertising. You definitely don't go to the grocery store. Who are you kidding? I go all the time. I and actually sometimes I insist because I I I like to look the butcher in the eye. Like I like to have a conversation about what's going on with the meat that I'm buying and co I cook. You don't realize this. Of course I go to the supermarkets. I'm the one that cooks it. Nobody in my house cooks. Nobody in my house. <laughs> I cook for, I cook for me and, and the nugget. What do you mean so nobody in your house? Wait, what? Justin's gonna cook? No, I'm saying my wife doesn't cook. My wife orders in. She picks up salads. She just she doesn't eat anything, um, and, and so so it's me. So it falls to me. So I go. But anyway, uh, it's not a small business. They are going to come public in September. I think they could raise ten percent of the, of the company's valuation. So if it's a ten to thirteen billion dollar IPO, they could raise a billion dollars plus uh, if they sell ten percent. Uh, we have this chart. John, throw this up. This is price to sales ratios of the most similar companies to. Instacart. How the hell Airbnb. is Airbnb? How is Airbnb similar? What um, Door, DoorDash certainly is. Well, no, Airbnb doesn't deliver anything, but it's a similar business model where Airbnb is providing space and Instacart is providing the convenience of somebody delivering things to you. I don't, dude, I don't know. It's a uh, nine times sales. DoorDash is four times sales. Uber looks like it's two and a half, and Lyft is. Uh, a little, a little bit more than one-time sales. So those are, I guess, the closest publicly traded comps. Maybe it's the size of the business that makes it a comp. Uh, Pepsi, I mentioned, is a, a user of the ad platform. How much are they buying? 150, 175. They're going to buy 175 million dollars worth of stock and not just be a customer, but actually be a shareholder, which I thought was interesting. Um, they've been profitable for five straight quarters, uh, but orders are barely growing. Yeah. So that's the like uh the way it was framed the way it was framed uh I forget who who framed it this way maybe a Bloomberg reporter it's like well this is going to be a referendum on what do we care more about profits or growth they don't really have growth oh, they're not growing they, they're not growing um Bern Hobart at the diff said uh great substack says this is the best and worst grocery business imaginable so this is burn you could think of Instacart as being somewhere between two different businesses it's the worst grocery imaginable because it takes a large but invisible cost. 
the cost of physically going to a store, loading up a cart, and getting it home, with an explicit cost that shows up in the prices of individual items and delivery. So they're marking up the the, the prices of the items. Um, they say that that's 8.2% of the gross transaction value, excluding tips. Operating an industry where mid-single-digit margins are a sign of success, starting with a high single-digit cost disadvantage makes for a difficult path. All right, that's why it's bad. It's good, though. It's the This is burn. It's the best imaginable grocery business because it can offer more breadth and can present every customer with a set of offers perfectly customized to get them to continuously shift more of their shopping onto Instagram's platform and get consumer packaged goods companies <laughs> to pay as much as possible for ads. Am I explaining that well? You, you called it Instacart again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What am I calling it? Instacart. <laughs> Instacart. Uh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, it could be a big. It could be a. It could be a hot stock. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't like be totally shocked. It's profitable. I threw some charts here. Let's go through the charts. Um. All right. So this is from Thomas Reiner. Thomas works for Altimeter, uh, and he compared Instacart to. DoorDash, which is a real, which is a good comp. DoorDash obviously is food delivery. Uber uh, does too now. And and Uber Uber, Uber has eats. grocery delivery now also. Uber eats not just Uber. Wait, not just Uber. No, eats. no, no. Uber is a competitor no, of Instacart. I know, but in this, he's he, he's only using Uber Eats. Okay. For this, this is gross so, transaction volume. Yeah, so growth is not quite what DoorDash is. EBITDA is not bad. Yeah, these are these are these are thin margin business. Next chart. So they're spending a buttload. Uh, on customer acquisition costs, which, you know, that's like any other company that's trying to get to scale. We mentioned that they're not growing very much. Next chart, please. I mean, look at the orders. This sucks. Look at this. This is the orders quarterly. It looks like they're stuck at, is that say 66.3 million? Yeah, it's not is great. That the and and if, you, if you look at the dollar amount, it's the same chart. So on an annual basis, it looks better, but quarterly, it's not great. So credit to them. Uh, to see a company of, of uh, you know, a pre-IPO company like this generating uh, positive cash flow is a good thing. Obviously, the street is going to like that. Uh, look what happened. Look look at COVID. Look what COVID did to this company. Next yeah. chart, please. This is for, all from do, their S1. Do you, know, do you know what this company was worth in the private market during COVID? I see, uh, 30 bill? 30, 39 billion, almost $40 billion. And that was pre-profitability. That's how insane we all were. Yeah. We, so were in, we were like all insane. Yeah, we're in, all very, that, in, very drunk. Very, very everyone drunk. Was drunk. Everyone was drunk and, and eating edibles and just valuing things on nonsense. Now, Instacart is here's, – here's what they've got going. They are, they are the clear market leader in, in delivery. Next chart. The one on the left shows share of sales in the $0 to $75 uh, of basket order size. And they're dominating there. But on the next chart, $75 plus. Now, their average order is $110. So at that level where people are doing like real proper grocery shopping, they're they're hundred and ten dollars. What's that? One dozen eggs. Dominating. All right, and this is this is what Josh is talking about uh, the advertising part. So this 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 in and of itself could be a pretty decent sized business. Thomas Weiner, here's what he said: Instacart is now at an eight hundred twenty five million dollar a year advertising revenue run rate. That's not that's not that's nothing. a lot of that's a lot of money growing at twenty percent a year and yeah. two and and two point eight percent as a percentage of their GTV. Uh, so they're, they're ramping that up. Compare that to Uber, who is at a $650 million run rate, despite having double the GTV for delivery. So this is a really, really effective way. And they said that their companies are getting like, uh, I think it was like a 15% uh, 
um, benefit, whatever, however that's measured, to their advertising. So it's a yeah, it's a massively well, powerful so advertising I think, platform. I think Burns' Substack is really well done, and he gets into this. We're not going to get into this now, but just this idea of like the supermarkets kind of like have to play nice with Instacart, even though they know. Like Instacart, gradually over time, the more consumers they they have, the more they're going to eat into the supermarket's piece of whatever profits there are. So here's uh, here's here's how it works. So they're almost the, like the damned app- if they do, damned if they don't. Well, supermarkets are a tough business. The, the margins yeah, are like are like razor business. razor thin. So I wonder if Instacart is pushing down that. I mean, I assume that they are because they're bringing customers there. So if the average order is one hundred ten dollars, again, this is from Thomas Reiner. He said eighty six percent of it. So $94 goes back to the grocery retailer. So for the retailer, that's great, right? They're getting yeah. big orders. Um, 8% of it goes to the shopper, like whoever's physically going to the store. And then uh, Instacart takes 6% of that. Right. So not bad. It's so hard. They're in such a hard business. It's a hard business. It's just a like what they are pulling off is really commendable because it just – it sucks to have to do what they have to do. Think about all of the people in this ecosystem that they have to make happy in order for this to work. It's it's like really a tough like the degree of difficulty here is high, and I hate but I hate invest investing in companies that it's this difficult to do what they do. So uh, yeah, I, I would not for that I'm, reason. Uh, I'm gonna pass. I'm not interested in it, but I I'm I'm not interested as a buyer, but I am interested to watch it for sure. All right, you're up. We got last to- last topic, and then we'll All get right, into I want, uh, make the case. I know we talk about this a lot that like stocks are actually businesses, right? Like they're 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 just not just numbers flashing on a screen. And I wanted to show some charts that illustrated that. We'll just ro- roll through them. All right, Walmart and Target are, are in very similar businesses, obviously not identical. Walmart's beat the crap. This Look is just share this. price. Well, this is just over the last year. Walmart's beat the crap out of Target. Well, look at the fundamentals. Look at the free cash flow. Next chart, please. Uh, Walmart is, you know, a much, much, much bigger business growing much, much more quickly than Target incidentally, is. Incidentally, Walmart is better at grocery than Target. And uh, I think that's a really big part of their business. And it's not a big part of Target's business, at least not currently. Uh, JetBlue used to be like a great airline. And it's just not anymore. Sucks. Uh, I fly Delta. So this is a Same. long-term chart. Delta's beat the crap out of JetBlue. Uh, next chart, Dude, free JetBlue, cash. do you find that like the train, the, the planes are grubby? Like they're like in disrepair and dirty Dude, more we were, frequently than the planes for another airline? Where did we just go together? Oh, wait, was I with you? No, I, we were on a JetBlue plane and this, the TV to, was, was from like- 90- to Texas? I don't know where no. we were. No, you might have been flying with Chris. No, no, no. We were going to Florida. I can't remember. The TVs were from like 1986. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, we went to Tampa. We're like, what the? Yeah, it's a piece of shit. It's a piece of shit. I really don't understand it. And everyone from Long Island, like, oh, JetBlue. What? Not anymore. What are you idiots carrying on about? It used it's to the be worst shit I've ever seen. All right, even their more. wait, even their terminal at uh, at JFK sucks. Like, there's like a Shake Shack and then five like made up restaurants that don't exist anywhere else on Earth. <laughs> I flew Delta out of JFK two days ago to Miami. They have everything I only like that people Delta. actually want. Yeah. yeah, it's great. I really don't understand what's going on with this JetBlue obsession. Next. All right, N- Netflix versus Paramount. Again, not identical businesses, but, you know, uh, I think we skipped one. Uh, Meta. We have the oh, Netflix Meta one? Meta Snap. Is, I mean. We have the Netflix one? Uh, all right, maybe we don't. That's fine. Um, okay, so this is uh, obviously Facebook has destroyed Snap. Uh, yeah. Next chart. Now I know I know I'm only showing absolute numbers. I'm not showing changes, but I mean you all get the point. Snap is not a great business. This is free cash flow. Meta's 24 billion. 
Snap is 81 million. Yeah. So much smaller and not as good. Yeah. And not right. growing. So. All right. Let's do, uh, let's do make the case. I'm going to make this really simple. Um, do, I, do I even have anything to illustrate what I'm about to say or not really? Illustrate it with your mind. All right. Whatever this VinFast thing is. What is this? Uh, I just learned about this yesterday. Okay. This is the dumbest thing you will ever hear um, for as long as we're doing this show. This is a Vietnamese, uh, like already, it sounds like I'm joking around. This is a Vietnam-based electric vehicle stock that went up. Let me just give you the number so I don't. VinFast's market cap, this is yesterday, is now 10 times as big as Rivian's. VinFast lost $2 billion last year on sales of $634 million. This stock, because of the, the SPAC structure, which I'll get into in a second, went up 385% in five trading days after de-SPACing. Uh, it, it, it is one of the most perverted versions of, of, of free market capitalism I have ever seen. Basically, because this was a SPAC, are we still chart up, chart, chart off? Okay. Because this was a SPAC, 99% of the company was in the hands of one person, and his name is Pham Nat Vuong, and I have no idea who that is. I, I suppose it's somebody in Vietnam. There was a float of 16 million shares that could be traded publicly. Um, the average trading volume was 8 million shares, and this one person held 99% of the float. So half of or 99% of the shares outstanding. So half of the float was being traded each day and most of it was being held by this guy. The market cap got to 190 billion. Think about how ludicrous this is. All right, put that tweet up now. This is Sawyer Merritt. VinFast became the world's third most valuable automaker today. This is yesterday after its stock rallied 20%, despite the company having sold a little more than 100 cars in America. It now has a market cap of $191 billion, more than four GM and Volkswagen combined. And then, you know, you can see where it, where it stacks up, only smaller than Toyota and Tesla. That was yesterday. We have a chart of what happened since then. So today the stock fell 40%. <laughs> like, this is what's going on. Why, why are we wh – what, what does this do? Tell and me still- the – Tell and me the still, good the good news. And still no Bitcoin ETF, although it seems like that's coming. Tell me why we're doing this, why yeah. we're permitting this. So here's what I want to say. I'm going to make the case just through this one example that because this even is a possibility, even though not a lot of people are involved in this, I don't think people like lost their retirements over this, just because of the fact that structurally this could happen, we need to shut down all SPAC issuance immediately until we until can, find we can out see what the hell's what's going on. Until we can see what's going on. I agree. It all has to stop. Let's just start from zero and go one by one and just ask ourselves, okay, Vietnamese EV, does this have to like do, does this have to exist? Does anyone need to trade this? Like if we just started making decisions that way, we we could probably put an end to this inside of one year. Yeah, if you value Toyota on the same metrics, it would be worth nine hundred trillion. Which, of course, it should be. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, enough already with the spacs. There is no positive use case for anything spac related. Let's stop it now. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna show you some mystery charts. This is a, a stock that I that I do own. So it's a quasi. It's like a make the case mystery chart type of uh, thing going on here. All right, John, chart on, please. 
All right. So this is this is the drawdown uh, over the last 10 years. And uh, this stock is in a world of hurt. As you can see, it's in by far the deepest drawdown that it's been in the last 10 years. Now, Josh, put put, put Wait, this in the what back. Hint? Did you give me any hints or you just I'm showing going, me the price? I'm going, Josh. Let me go. Oh, let me okay. cook. Well, you put, said now, Josh. Put I thought put, it was my turn. Put this in the back of your brain for later. You could okay. see the drawdowns prior to this disaster were have been pretty shallow, which should give you a clue as to what type of stock we're talking about here. You got it? Pretty Ooh. shallow. Okay. So all right. So 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 put a pin in that. Next chart, please. Um, this is the dividend yield. Okay. Ooh. So it's it's hovered between you know four and five for most of the last decade. I know what this. Hold I on, know what this hold is. Hold on, hold on. All right, let me finish. Let me. I'd finish. like to solve the let puzzle. Me fin- no, 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 no. Uh, next chart. This is the dividend. So not only is it an accidental high yielder, but it's also a dividend growth stock. It's also raising its dividend every year. All right, and then I think we've got one more. Uh, no, we got two more. Last. Uh, this is the price to earnings ratio. Just smushed under seven now. And the next chart is showing the daily stock price. You saw that gigantic red candle. That to me reeks of capitulation. Yeah. Uh, I bought it on the higher low. Yeah. Uh, and I, and so what do, what do we think? Oh, AT&T. The, the, AT&T. Yeah. Close. Oh, that's the other one. Verizon. Verizon. Do they look the same? They must look the same. Yeah, Verizon's Ver- a little I follow shorter. Verizon. Yeah, Verizon's a little less crappy. What do you what think? What the hell is what? Do you know what the uh, CEO salaries are for these companies? I don't think I want to know. Ninety million. I I think like I think like the CEO of Verizon. I think his name is Ivan. I think this guy pays himself like sixty million dollars a year. <laughs> I could be I could be wrong. So if you're a, a, a if you're an attorney for uh, Verizon, don't just I apologize. I think it's something stupid like that. This is one of the biggest investor capital incineration machines that currently exist today. It's really remarkable. It's, over the last that, 10 years, it's not even it's their like, fault, though. It's up like 15% of the last 10 years. But what are they doing wrong? Should that be like a 12% well, yield? A lot, of it, a lot of it was the hangover. It was trading in concert with AT&T from the lead shit. Fine. I think they burned a lot of cash buying media properties. Like, didn't oh, yeah, Verizon yeah, buy horrible. Yahoo and all it's kinds terrible. of stupid shit? Terrible. Uh, and AT&T tried to make TV shows and... But then also 5G, like everyone's like, oh, 5G, I'm super bullish. Are you? Sounds like a huge money suck that there's not a lot of beneficiaries on the equipment side or the transmission side of 5G. It seems like we're the winners and the businesses are the losers. Is 5G a scam? I still don't have service. A 5G cause COVID. All right. We don't have that much time to get into that. I want to thank everybody who came out to to, uh, watch the show live. For those of you in podcast land, thank you for listening. Uh, we will be back with another all new episode of What Are Your Thoughts next Tuesday. But wait. But, but, there we go. but at the end of this week, sadly, there is no new Compound and Friends uh, this coming Friday. So please, we listen to this episode. Check out some of our friends who also have great podcasts. Anyway, want to wish you all a happy Labor Day. Thanks for rocking with us, Michael, myself, Duncan, John, Nicole, the whole gang. We will see you after the holiday weekend. Enjoy. Whether you're just getting started as an investor or you're managing a multi-million dollar portfolio, Ridholtz Wealth Management has the solution for you. It all starts with building the right financial plan. To speak with a certified financial planner today, visit RidholtzWealth.com. 
Don't forget to check us out at youtube.com slash thecompoundrwm. Make sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcasting app. If you love investing podcasts, check out Michael and Ben every Wednesday morning on Animal Spirits. Thanks for listening. Ritholtz Wealth Management is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Ritholtz Wealth Management and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as and may not be used in connection with an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or hold an interest in any security or an investment product. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risk and possible launch of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Ritholtz Wealth Management unless a client service agreement is in place.